The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The threshold for Security Council reform is extraordinarily high because it requires reforms to the UN Charter. And under the terms of the Charter itself, you cannot make any edits to the document without ratifications from two-thirds of the UN membership, including all of the existing permanent members of the Security Council. So at the end of the day, even if by some happy miracle the Biden administration was able to get consensus on some sort of package for Security Council reform, or at least if it was able to get majority support uh, for Security Council reform, that still has to be ratified in Beijing, it still has to be ratified in Moscow, and possibly most challenging of all, it would have to be ratified in Washington by, by the Senate. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for June 22nd, 2023. At the United Nations, Russia's obstruction of efforts to respond to its invasion of Ukraine is finally sparking serious interest in an issue that has long simmered in the background of global politics, reform of the UN Security Council, to make it a larger and more inclusive body. And in contrast to prior U.S. administrations, the Biden administration is at the tip of the spear of this effort, and may be preparing to release a reform proposal of its own in the coming weeks. To better understand this forthcoming proposal and the context that has led to it, I sat down with Richard Gowan, an experienced UN watcher and current UN director at the International Crisis Group. We discussed why the Ukraine conflict has sparked an interest in Security Council reform, what reform is likely to look like, and who stands to benefit the most. It's the Lawfare Podcast for June 22nd. Richard Gowan on the U.S. push for UN Security Council reform. So, Richard... We have long had a discussion in more academic circles, in more UN watcher circles about ways we could have done things better at the United Nations, ways we might have structured, particularly the Security Council, in a different way to achieve different objectives. But for the first time that I can remember, although I don't watch these things as closely as you do, it seems like there is actually a real political effort underway by a major power, the United States, a Security Council veto member, permanent five member, to explore and really perhaps table a proposal that is intended to try and build consensus towards reforming the Security Council. Tell us a little bit about the context that has led us to what strikes me as a pretty historical moment, if I'm right that in, in my assessment that this is actually a serious thing that the Biden administration very well may want to make happen. Well, diplomats in New York have been talking about Security Council reform since the 1990s, and it's typically been a fairly fruitless and fairly futile conversation. But Russia's aggression against Ukraine, I think, has upended discussions about this issue. I think there was a real recognition starting in February last year, that the way Moscow was able to use the Security Council and its veto in the Security Council to fend off criticism of its actions against Ukraine demonstrated uh, the flaws in the body. And through the summer of last year, there was a lot of talk around 
Turtle Bay about the need to get serious on Security Council reform. Uh, what was striking is that Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, the US ambassador to the UN, decided that the US should run with this, this sense of a need for change. And there was a, a big moment uh, in September last year when President Biden himself told other leaders at the General Assembly that uh, the US favoured favored Security Council reform. Now, we can get into the details of Biden's proposal. It hasn't actually necessarily moved that far from uh, previous US positions on what a reformed Security Council should look like. But the mere fact that you had the US president standing up and saying that this was a priority uh, really caught a lot of attention in, in New York and has has created a sort of a sense that we're in a, a new phase of discussing where the council should go, although I would immediately caveat that by saying not not everyone here believes that all this discussion will actually ultimately lead to any changes to the rules or the structure of the council. So I want to get into the substance of what we think the U.S. proposal looks like. Although you know, I don't. I think there's a sense there's that's a bit of a moving target, and and to some extent is still a work in progress. But before we get there, let's talk about process. You know, how has Ambassador Greenfield, Linda Thomas Greenfield? you know, approached this question. What are they doing in terms of formulating a reform proposal or building off, you know, the the prior uh, indicators of reform that President Biden's put on the table? And how are they building a coalition to try and accomplish this? What is, how are they approaching it within the body and the diplomatic community around the United Nations in New York? Well, to be honest, I think that immediately after Biden made this widely noted statement in September, there was a bit of uncertainty amongst U.S. officials about how to to move forward on the initiative. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a classic U.S. policy process. You get the president to say something, and then you have to work out how to actually build on what the president has said. And so back in September, October, I don't think there was a clear U.S. vision of how to take forward discussions of Security Council reform. What Linda Thomas-Greenfield did was actually to work fairly quietly and show a degree of humility. And she basically has been on a listening tour um, with other ambassadors uh, around the UN in New York, talking to different groups, such as the African group uh, of member states, about what their positions and what their demands on Security Council reform are. So, you know, the US has actually been primarily listening. And as time has gone by, some ambassadors have begun to wonder if the if the administration was really going to follow up on Biden's statement at all. However, there has been a feeling in recent weeks that the US is moving forward to releasing some sort of statements on its own position. And there was a a report in the Washington Post last week that uh, gave something of an outline of what the U.S. might be willing to put on the table. So for folks who might be listening who might not be familiar with it, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the current structure of the Security Council? I know people might most likely know 15 members, 10 rotating, 5 permanent, the five permanents have vetoes, but there's more that goes into it in terms of representation of different regions and who gets to be heard and take roles in the Security Council. So can you give us some background in that? And then maybe we can use that as an entree into saying, what, what are we exploring changing about that structure? What are the moving parts that the Biden administration seems open to adjusting in a direction that might be preferred by different communities within the United Nations? So as you say, the the council currently has 15 members, and those are the five veto powers, the US, UK, France, Russia, and China. And then you have 10 members, each of which are elected uh, for terms of two years. And they are elected by regional groups. So you have uh, two further countries from Western Europe, 
uh, one from Eastern Europe, which is a bit of a historical anomaly, um, harking back to the Cold War. Then three from Africa, two from Latin America, and two from Asia. The, you know, the core question about council reform is really whether it's possible to expand the number of permanent seats on the body. And back in 2005, uh, four countries got together in the wake of the Iraq war to make a big push to win permanent seats of their own. Uh, they were Germany, Brazil, Japan, and India. And although they, they failed to get what they wanted in 2005, this group, uh, which calls itself the G4, has continued to campaign for permanent seats uh, since that time. In addition, the African group of UN members, uh, which makes up over a quarter of the uh, whole UN membership, uh, has been campaigning for Africa to be assigned two permanent seats of its own. In recent times, especially because there's a lot of attention to African positions over Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, the Africans, I think, feel that, you know, that they have some momentum for that, that claim. What we think the Biden administration is heading towards in terms of a proposal, although it does still seem to be a work in progress, is essentially uh, opening up six new permanent seats uh, for the G4, uh, Brazil, India, uh, Japan and Brazil, and then potentially for two more African members. Now, if you expand the number of permanent seats on the Security Council, it's also necessary to expand the number of elected seats uh, to balance out the body. So this would mean moving from a, a fairly tight group of 15 countries to somewhere in the mid-20s, uh, a body of, say, 25-ish uh, countries. We still don't know all the details of what Biden and his advisors will propose, but that seems to be the direction of travel. It's worth saying that the US in the past has always been explicit that it wanted Germany and Japan to have permanent seats. The Obama administration advocated for India to have a permanent seat. If the US comes down in favor of giving Brazil and Africa permanent seats, that is um, a step forward. But what we're seeing looks like it's an extension of, of past US policies, but with, you know, with some additional political energy. So... This focus on permanent membership is interesting because as I understand it, at least from the United States perspective, the focus on extending or the willingness to extend to permanent members does not mean a willingness to extend the veto, or at least is not believed to mean that yet, which is often people think of that's the main advantage being a permanent member. So what would the, you know, this would essentially be creating a, a, three-tier UN Security Council structure instead of a two-tier. You would have P5 members with the vetoes, other permanent members without vetoes, and then the rotating membership. So that middle class, that middle tier, what are the advantages for those states if they don't have the veto? What does permanent membership mean to them? Why would it serve be to their advantage? And perhaps more importantly, why would it also be to the advantage of the regional blocks they represent? Um, what is in it for the other states in that region to have a, a one of their neighbors in that permanent seat? Well, I think this is going to be a real point of contention because certainly the the Washington Post story suggested that the U.S. is sticking to its position that the new permanent members should should not have vetoes. Now, I think that for some of the aspirants to permanent seats, um, notably Germany and Japan this would be a broadly acceptable outcome. I mean, ultimately, Berlin and Tokyo know that with shifting global power dynamics, their chances of getting permanent seats with vetoes are always going to be very low. And certainly German diplomats on and off over the last decade have wondered whether it's really worth campaigning for Security Council reform at all. So if they were to be offered a permanent seat with no veto, I think they would go for that. Brazil might go for it too, but I do not think that India in particular will believe this is sufficient. Uh, for Delhi, it is 
axiomatic that it deserves a permanent seat with a veto. And the Indians may not be willing to accept anything short of that because they don't believe it's compatible with their, their rising power. And you know, the US might argue that India should go for a permanent seat with no veto now in the hope of getting a veto five years down the road or 10 years down the road. But I suspect the Indians will look at how long council reform always takes and think that that is a false promise. That said, there are, you know, there are lots of countries out there that would feel that even having a country like India uh, on the council full time might not be entirely in their national interests. I mean, for Pakistan, uh, having India on the council full time would be a huge headache. For China, it would be unwelcome. Uh, the Chinese have also made it very clear that they do not want to see Japan get any sort of privileged position in the council at all, even if it falls short of what China has at present. So, I mean, I, I do worry that the US position will not quite satisfy anyone in this debate, except possibly, as I say, Germany and Japan, who may just see it as a way out of a, a very long reform effort that um, is otherwise not going anywhere for them. So what does it mean for these states to be put forward for that permanent status without that that veto vote? You know, what additional leverage or authority is that going to give them on on the body? And and how does that channel regional perspectives or help to address perceived regional inequities? Or does it? Is this something that's really good for Germany and Japan, but not necessarily for other countries in Europe or in Asia? Well, there's a, there's a club of countries that go by the name of Uniting for Consensus that argue that really giving giving anyone new permanent seats is a bad idea. And these are the countries that fear that they would be overshadowed if Germany, Japan and their friends um, uh, were, were elevated, even if they were only elevated to what you call, call second class seats. So, you know, for Argentina and other Spanish-speaking Latin American countries like Mexico, the idea of Brazil holding the sole permanent Latin American seat is not welcome, as I say, for Pakistan, but also for countries like Indonesia. It's not attractive to have in India permanently in the council, sort of developing a, a voice of, a sort of the voice of Asia. And so... This is one reason why there's an understanding that even if you created new permanent seats, you would have to create new elected seats as well to ensure that other significant middle powers like Indonesia didn't feel that they were being marginalized in, in the council. I mean, I think it's a, it's a very good question as to what the G4 would achieve if they got these permanent seats without vetoes. I mean, clearly... It would at least establish them as long-term players in the council whose votes would matter, because ultimately in the, in the council, you know, vetoes matter, but you also need to build majorities of countries too to get resolutions through. I think that you know, the Chinese joke that the Japanese would always just sort of say whatever the Americans were saying, but for, you know, for countries that find themselves right in the middle of emerging geopolitical rifts, such as Japan, Germany, and India, just having a permanent seat in the council um, would at least give them a little more say over how the UN deals with those, those geopolitical tensions. So it would offer them some advantages, but the question is whether uh, it's, you know, it's good enough to really meet their, their national interests. So you mentioned that the main drive, the focus of U.S. efforts, for the U.S. mission at the moment at least, appears to be really this listening campaign, a series of engagements, taking in recommendations, feedback, thoughts from from other uh, missions to the United Nations um, to feed into this sort of process of generating a more concrete proposal. What sort of feedback do we think Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is getting? Um, how are different contingents in the U.N.? You know, community of member states responding to this possibility of a proposal? Are they receptive to it? Are they not receptive to it? And are we seeing different um, kind of factions break out on regional lines or other lines? My overall sense is that most countries and most groups of countries have stuck with their pre-existing positions. The US 
initiative did create a lot of excitement, but it didn't inspire states to start fundamentally changing their their well-known existing stances on Security Council reform. So the G4 still want permanent seats with the veto. Uh, uniting for consensus, the G4's opponents still argue that there should be no new permanent seats, but instead maybe there should be a new uh, a new category of long longer term but elected seats that you know might last for five years rather than two years uh, that you know, perhaps could partially satisfy countries like like Germany. You know, everyone has broadly held to these these positions. The there have been a few interesting developments, though. You know, firstly, Russia responded rather mischievously to the U.S. proposal by saying that it favours permanent seats for Brazil and India, but not for uh, Japan and Germany. And that's clearly a, an effort to sort of drive a wedge between between the G four and try and pull India and Brazil, uh, you know, away from the U.S. Uh, China has been a bit less explicit, but you know, the, Chinese, the Chinese, who are traditionally very sceptical about Security Council reform, have at least sort of indicated that they are open to the conversations now. They, they don't want to look like they are spoilers blocking the US initiative. But again, I think that the Chinese would uh, ipso facto rule out accepting any deal that, that gave Japan a permanent seat. Um, and then there is the African group. And, you know, the African group is really crucial to how this whole initiative goes um, because the Africans uh, control over 50 seats in the UN General Assembly and for a very long time uh, they have had this demand that they should have two permanent seats with, with vetoes. Now, this has always been slightly enigmatic to the rest of the UN membership because the African group has never agreed on which African countries would hold those two permanent seats. But you know, I think diplomats sort of see that there are some African countries that are thinking that they should engage with the US initiative, that this might actually be an opportunity to get greater African representation on the Security Council. Uh, there are other African countries that are very suspicious. They, they worry that you know, the US might try and sort of divide the African group to get the votes for this proposal. It's not clear where the African Union's members are going to come out on the reform initiative, but everyone is watching them and trying to divine what their what their ultimate position will be. And so we've talked a lot about the horse race, the jockeying among these states for positions, you know, the extent to which they're open to this proposal. But what is the actual threshold that would need to be met to engage in reform here? Is this something that can only be done through revision to the UN Charter, which would presumably require, you know, an approval by a critical mass of people to join the amended version? Or is there a streamlined administrative process that might allow this to move forward without that sort of dramatic diplomatic undertaking? No, the, the threshold for Security Council reform is extraordinarily high. Uh, because it requires reforms to the UN Charter. And under the terms of the Charter itself, you cannot make any ed edits to the document without ratifications from two-thirds of the UN membership, including all of the existing permanent members of the Security Council. So at the end of the day, even if by some happy miracle the Biden administration was able to get consensus on some sort of package for Security Council reform, or at least if it was able to get majority support uh, for Security Council reform, that still has to be ratified in Beijing, it still has to be ratified in Moscow, and possibly most challenging of all, it would have to be ratified in Washington by, by the Senate. So the, the rules do mean that the chances of success are always going to be pretty limited. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So in light of that high threshold, and especially because I think you're right, and I think the Biden administration is, is well aware that you know, getting a, holding a Senate vote to require two thirds support in the U.S. Senate would be daunting, um, at least in present politics. Although things are dynamic in this particular area, large on account of Ukraine, so who, who knows for sure? You know, given that that's such a high threshold, and this appears to be more of an agenda-setting item or a uh, or kind of rhetorical tool. How is it being used by the United States, or, or do you suspect it might be used in the future? What is the political advantage in floating and spending look like a substantial amount of time and effort on a proposal that is most likely DOA, at least in the near term, uh, and probably in, I would guess, the, the duration of the Biden administration? Well, look, I think that it was simply necessary for Biden to talk about the need for council reform when he went to the UN last September. As I say, you know, Russia's aggression against Ukraine had created a really strong sense, at least amongst the diplomatic community in New York, that something was fundamentally wrong with the Security Council. And if you go back to the high-level segment of the General Assembly last year, you will see that a huge number of leaders were talking about the need for council reform. Now, some of them, like President Erdogan of Turkey, have you know made this a bit of a hobby, but there was uh, there was generally a, a sense that you know, this was a moment where the nettle of reform needed gripping. And if Biden had gone to the podium and not mentioned the topic, or if he'd only made some sort of very vague reference to, to the topic, then it would have looked like the US was tacitly siding with the other permanent members of the Security Council to keep in place a, a UN power structure that a lot of countries now believe is inherently illegitimate. So it was just obvious politics to step up and say, we favour reform. I think moving on from that, you know, my sense is that there is a bit of a division amongst officials in the administration about what the value of this initiative is. I think there are officials in the administration who believe that this is a a serious task and who also see that unless you start to reform the way the council works, you know, the body is likely to lose credibility over time and become of less value to, to the U.S., and then there may be a more cynical strand of thinking, which is that at the end of the day, when it comes to the crunch, Beijing and Moscow are not going to accept any sort of reform that really advantages certainly Germany and Japan. And, you know, Beijing probably also will try and block any reform that advantages India. And so the you know the US can say if everything does peter out. Well, we tried, but it was our friends in, in China and Russia who, who killed us off. And that, that tells you about who really wants to see a more efficient UN. There's a, there's a notable contrast here to 2005, when, as I said, the G4 countries did make a huge push and got a lot of momentum to get permanent seats. And actually, at that time, the US and China joined forces to, to stop them dead. The Bush administration worked with Beijing uh, to kill off the idea of reform. You know, now the US is hoping to show that it has changed and that it, it's on the si side of those who, who are willing to question the status quo in New York. So you, as you mentioned, this whole enterprise really arises out of the Ukraine conflict and the way 
member states saw Russia use its veto power as a permanent five member on the Security Council. But what's strange to me is that if that's the impetus for the strive, it seems like the only proposals the United States is willing to consider, um, none of which would change the current veto structure, would actually address that underlying concern. Have we heard talking points from them or an argument as to why this these sorts of proposals they're considering and floating actually are responsive to the underlying problems revealed by the Ukraine conflict? Or is there... Is there kind of a an idea that, well, we can address some other lower-hanging fruits with the Security Council, but that issue is just a little beyond our reach? Biden said that the U.S. would do its best to refrain from using its veto. And, and actually, the U.S. does not use its veto very frequently in the Security Council at all now, except when it comes to questions relating to Israel. But it is... It is it is axiomatic that no administration of any type in Washington is going to uh, let go of its veto power, you know, any more than any Russian president um, or Chinese president would relinquish their veto powers. Uh, the UK and France obviously do still have vetoes. Uh, neither of them have used them for 30 years. The French in particular have talked about the need for building up rules about limiting the use of the veto, especially in situations involving mass atrocities. But certainly the the US, Chinese and Russians don't want to submit to even limited uh, restrictions on on the veto. And I think everyone recognizes that that is simply a uh, a reality of Security Council reform. Uh, There have been efforts to at least create new deterrents to the use of the veto recently. Uh, Last year, the US backed an initiative in the General Assembly, uh, which uh, declared that each time a country uses a veto in the Security Council, it should go to the General Assembly within 10 days to explain itself. And that sort of shaming tactic may influence how some of the P5 use their privileges. But at the end of the day, none of the P5 are going to let the let their vetoes go. So separate from this conversation, we actually have seen what you could, depending on you, your view of it, the effectiveness view as a type of Security Council reform or the resurrection of a form of Security Council reform or, or right-sizing or rescoping, which is the Uniting for Peace formula. This is a formula that the United States kind of developed in the early Cold War to, to some degree, overcome intransigence among P5 members by moving questions that are vetoed by uh, in the Security Council to the General Assembly for discussion. And then, depending on how you view this authority, General Assembly recommendations that result might have international legal authority or not to some degree. And we saw that be used again in the Ukraine context this past fall. Uh, and in particular, result in a resolution about uh, providing reparations to Ukraine being kind of the most no- notable one, at least in my mind, that has uh, arguably some legal effect, um, at least in, in some folks' eyes, or arguably could. Tell us a little bit about what role that has played uh, in these broader discussions. Is that seen as an actual change in operations or a a potential uh, reinvigoration of the General Assembly, as some people have framed it, by those working in the United Nations? Or are they more skeptical of the idea that this moves some power to the Security Council, at least in cases where it's deadlocked by veto members, to the General Assembly in a substantive way? I think there's a sense amongst UN members, actually from quite a range of political backgrounds that we are entering a period where the Security Council is going to be less efficient, to put it mildly, given the tensions amongst the existing permanent members. And if you look back over the history of the UN, when the Council becomes less efficient, the General Assembly often steps up, at least in part, to fill the vacuum. So in the 1950s, it was the General Assembly that authorized the first full-scale UN peacekeeping force um, to deploy in 1956 to end the Suez Crisis because the Security Council was deadlocked. In the 70s and 80s, uh, when the Council was at quite a low ebb, uh, non-Western countries, the non-aligned movement, used the General Assembly as a platform 
to continue the campaign against apartheid and against the residue of colonialism in, in Africa. And so there are good historical precedents for the General Assembly taking on a greater role in peace and security issues. Uh, you know, we, we were seeing glimmers of this even before Russia's aggression against Ukraine. In 2021, the Council effectively deadlocked over how to respond to the coup in Myanmar uh, in February of, of 2021 because of differences between the Western countries and China. And in response to that, an initiative was launched in the General Assembly to pass a resolution calling for an arms embargo against the, the Burmese military. That took a lot of time to negotiate. Um, Southeast Asian nations were quite sceptical about the entire initiative. Uh, nonetheless, you know, it was a sign that the pendulum might be moving back towards the General Assembly a little. Clearly, Ukraine gave much more momentum to the idea of the General Assembly uh, as an actor in peace and security. We've seen big majorities of Assembly members uh, back a, a number of resolutions condemning Russia. Uh, you're right to say, though, that not all those resolutions have had a lot of a lot of muscle to them. Although there was the resolution calling for a damages register and reparations, uh, that's really the sort of the most concrete penalty that the General Assembly has suggested for Russia to date. Uh, the Ukrainians are now pursuing the idea of setting up a a tribunal um, focused on the crime of aggression that could potentially put Vladimir Putin on trial in the future. They would like General Assembly support for that. But it isn't really clear that a lot of countries want to get in, on board with that initiative. So the General Assembly is back in focus, but there's a big debate here in New York about whether it's largely going to continue to work at the level of principle, you know, sort of acting as a, a space where the international community, whatever that is, um, can uh, sort of come together around condemnations of illegitimate acts like, like Russia attacking Ukraine, or whether it could take some steps forward and sort of start playing a greater operational role in international crisis management. Uh, some, you know, some UN members would really like to see that move towards an operational role. I think if the Security Council becomes more and more deadlocked, that could be a direction of travel for the General Assembly, but it isn't guaranteed that the Assembly will go that far. We have heard as part of these efforts from U.S. officials, I can't remember whether they're actually quoted by name or not uh, in that Washington Post piece, the specific quotation I'm thinking of, suggests that their focus on Security Council reform um, and presumably General Assembly reform, to the extent that's also part of the picture, really reflects a broader effort to make international institutions more effective, more representative, more equitable to some extent. And and they've been hinting at this being part of a broader campaign that would reach elsewhere as well. Are there other parts of the UN system or other international institutions for that matter where we're seeing similar sorts of discussions or even maybe more concrete proposals or action towards reform? Or is this the tip of the spear as far as we know? They're, they're kind of tackling the the biggest elephant in the room first. Security Council reform always sucks up an enormous amount of diplomatic attention here in New York. But actually, I think that you know, while it is a hot topic, there are other hot topics out there. And for some UN members, Security Council is less important than the possibility of reforming the governance structures of the international financial institutions. Um, there is now a big push led by leaders such as Mia Motley of Barbados and actually also the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, to try and rebalance um, decision-making in the IMF and World Bank to give poorer countries, give developing countries a greater say over how those institutions work. I mean, you know, the entire African continent, for example, controls less than 10% of the voting powers in the international financial institutions. And I've noticed that, you know, for a lot of UN members, the idea of financial institution reform actually feels a bit more concrete and a, you know, a bit more clearly in their interest uh, than Security Council reform does. You know, if you are Liberia or Laos 
the question of who has permanent seats on the council is perhaps less relevant than whether you could borrow from the IMF and World Bank at advantageous rates. And there's also a sense that this may just be a little more politically doable. You know, there are examples as recently as the Obama administration of shifts in the voting weights of the international financial institutions. It's it's a high mountain to climb, but it isn't quite as high as Security Council reform. So unless Biden can give the Security Council reform discussion another big jolt, I think there is a possibility that it will sort of gradually fade away um, and be overshadowed by his efforts to change IMF and, and World Bank uh, decision-making structures. Meanwhile, in in New York, in addition to, to discussions about what the General Assembly can do as a counterweight to the Security Council, there's more technical discussions going on over something called the Peacebuilding Commission. Um, the Peacebuilding Commission is an advisory body that is meant to help countries uh, emerging from conflict or facing conflict reduce the chances of violence. Uh, it's generally seen as a, a slightly less threatening space for member states to engage uh, than uh, the Security Council, uh, in part because it doesn't have the Security Council's muscle. You know, there is a sense that actually, right at the moment, given the tensions within the Council, this would be a good moment to strengthen the Peacebuilding Commission in some ways, uh, give it a greater, greater powers to assist countries facing risks of conflict. And if the Security Council debate fizzles, I think we will see attention move to to the Peacebuilding Commission in addition to the international financial institutions. So just to take a step back from some of these reforms, you know, if if it's true that we're in a moment where we're seeing the Security Council potentially paralyzed more often, so focus shifting the General Assembly, a willingness to consider reconsider at least the distribution of voting authority in certain international institutions like the IFIs, maybe even at the Security Council level, you know, we're seeing a a bit more flexibility in the joints of the institutions, a a willingness to redistribute power in these institutions within the UN system, within the broader international system, along lines that match the real-world distribution of power, or states at least, um, within the world. So what does that mean in terms of the distribution of power? Because a common actor you've you've mentioned several times now is Africa, a region, a continent, but a, a, importantly, a block of member states that, as you mentioned, are, are heavily represented in the more representative bodies like the General Assembly, but are kind of historically underrepresented in a lot of corridors of power, a lot of the institutions notoriously uh, kind of neglected by U.S. diplomacy in terms of funding, staffing, uh, although that trend has begun to improve a little bit in the last few years, and to some extent by a lot of other countries as well. You know, is is that really a big block that we're likely to see empowered moving forward? And are there others? Like, who is going to benefit from this, what might prove to be a, a restructuring, a moment, a moment where we're seeing more openness to new possibilities Who's best positioned to capitalize on that openness? I mean, there's a lot of talk at the UN these days about the reemergence of this rather amorphous force called the Global South, which extends beyond Africa to cover the the countries of Asia and Latin America, the old G77 and non-aligned movement. And there is a sense that the sort of current sense of global crisis creates a moment for the countries of the global south to uh, sort of lay out their vision of international institutional reform and the us and europeans to some extent have to listen to them because we're in a period where western policymakers are concerned that they are losing influence over the global south a specific instance of this is in debates and votes on the situation between Russia and Ukraine. And so officials in Washington, officials in in Europe, sort of do have to take some non-Western criticisms of the structure of the global system on board. I mean, I think this is, you know, this is unquestionably the political dynamic of the moment. You know, I would go back to previous moments of North-South tension. You know, back in the 1970s, there was a, a very strong push from developing countries to get greater authority in the multilateral system. You know, that largely got wrecked on 
the rocks of uh, neoliberalism in the 1980s, more recently in 2005, there was, big, there was big talk of UN reform, but much of it didn't eventuate. So there's certainly a great pressure for reform at the moment, but we just don't know whether ultimately it will be possible to find agreements between the West, the Global South, uh, and let alone Russia and China about sort of how to restructure the, the UN system. I, I would also say when we're talking about this thing, the Global South, my impression is that non-Western countries find it much easier to find common ground over things like reforms to the IMF, uh, where they, they all feel that they should have uh, a greater say than they do on the specific issue of Security Council reform, which is so inherently divisive region by region. You know, and even though the African group, uh, for example, has a common position on Security Council reform, the Africans have been asking for years for two permanent seats on the council, but no one is sure whether that means Nigeria and South Africa, or if it means Ethiopia and Algeria. I mean, these are undecided questions. And the closer one got to any actual Security Council reform, the more divisive those dilemmas would become. So there is a huge amount of pressure from the African group, from the Global South more generally. But when it comes to the crunch, reform remains exceedingly difficult. So for those of us who are interested in these issues but are, do not follow and cannot follow uh, the intricate and complex happenings at Turtle Bay the way you do uh, and, you know, aren't may not be able to uh, keep up with your writing and commenting on this to the full extent we would all like, what are the big things we should be looking for down the pike in the next few months? Where are is your attention going to be focused to see where these trends might be headed? Are there particular deadlines, events, processes in place that might yield a little more insight down the road to get a better sense whether reform of the type that's being discussed is actually going to continue to be an issue or, as you mentioned, as a possibility kind of faded back into the background? Well, let me firstly say that no one has ever suggested that Following Security Council reform up close is good for your mental health. <laughs> I do hope most of your listeners keep a, a safe distance from this particular topic. Yeah, every, everyone is signing a mental health waiver by listening to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <To be clear. laughs> um, look, I think you know the first the first question is: Will the U.S. actually put down some version of the reform plan that we've been discussing, and when? Uh, there is a sense currently that Washington will have to release its position on council reform, either in the immediate run-up to the high-level session of the UN General Assembly this September, you know, or during the General Assembly session itself. I mean, Biden could at least outline the rudiments of the US reform plan in his speech at the General Assembly this year. What happens then uh, actually involves another UN talking shop, which is something called the Intergovernmental Negotiations. Uh, now, the, inter the IGN, the Intergovernmental Negotiations, are a long-standing UN mechanism for countries to talk about Security Council reform. It's about 14 years old. And the IGN historically has been deadly dull, but actually in the aftermath of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, this this framework for discussions has somewhat sprung to life. There's quite a lot of energy around these discussions. And the chairs of the negotiations, who are currently Austria and Kuwait, have said that in 2023, 2024, they would like to hold a series of sessions at which countries can review different existing proposals for council reform. So they will review the G4 proposal, the proposal that Brazil and its allies, for example, have put out to create new permanent seats. They will review the African position. And it's possible that they could review the US position. And so this, this framework, uh, the IGN, could be uh, where you start to see if countries are willing to respond positively to what the US has, has put on the table. The, the deadline that lies beyond that comes in September 2024. And in September 2024, Secretary-General Guterres will convene a very grandly titled summit in New York called the Summit of the Future. Now, Guterres says that this summit 
which will be at the leaders level, is an opportunity to look at major reforms to every part of the multilateral system, including the international financial institutions, including the way the UN uh, tries to regulate the internet and a lot of other good things. Uh, But it is pretty clear that if there has been any progress by that point, one of the big big wins for member states at the summit of the future could be to at least uh, announce how they will move forward with Security Council reform discussions. You know, it could be an opportunity for member states, for example, to set a deadline for trying to complete Security Council reform discussions. It's very unlikely that we'll actually have full agreement on council reform by September of next year. And of course, you know, by September of next year, we'll be on the cusp of the US elections and everyone will be watching what's happening in, in Washington and, and whether Biden will get a second term. But if there is some diplomatic progress, you know, that, that summit is, is where member states could agree some sort of way forward. I've heard, for example, that you know, the Chinese have suggested that maybe we should set the goal of Security Council reform by the anniversary of the UN's uh, of the UN Charter in 2025. That's the 80th anniversary of, of the UN char- Charter being signed. Maybe it won't be possible to agree a date. Maybe some new negotiating format will be agreed, uh, or you know, or maybe nothing will happen at all. But that that I think is the the target date that we're all moving uh, towards right now. Well, we will all have to keep an eye on those events to come and perhaps they will provide us opportunity to have you back on the podcast then but until then we are unfortunately out of time thank you richard gowan thank you so much for joining us here today on the lawfare podcast thank you the lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the brookings institution please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to check out lawfare's other podcasts including rational security a casual light-hearted chat about national security news that i co-host each week with my colleagues went to and alan rosenstein in addition be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues and consider becoming a material supporter of lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other lawfare podcasts among other perks this podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell and produced by Kara Schillen of Good Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.